Chapter 2. The Magic of Magic Quadrants There is magic in the Gartner Magic Quadrant. Despite the heaps of scorn expressed by vendors that don't make it into the leader's quadrant, there's no denying the positive benefits that derive from reaching the position farthest up and to the right. In this chapter, I explain how an analyst creates a magic quadrant and what you should do to facilitate that process. But first, a few words about that magic. Here are some of the benefits that derive from favorable placement in the magic quadrant for your product category. Increased deal participation. While many CIOs will claim that they don't rely on Gartner MQs, the reality is that being one of the three or four vendors in the leader's quadrant almost guarantees your inclusion in a product selection process. And after all, what more do you need to win deals? Your product is the best, right? At the very least, most decision makers at large enterprises will want to know why you're not included in the bake-off, and the supporting staff will have to justify the decision to leave you out. The most frequent complaint you will hear from your sales team if you are not in the leader's quadrant is that they don't get asked to the party because of the low ranking in the MQ. Increased deal participation more than justifies any effort or expense you make on behalf of moving the dot up and to the right. Increased valuation. It is hard to make the case for increased company valuation based on position in the magic quadrant. The hard evidence is not there. But anecdotal evidence abounds. I told the story of NetScreen and its $4.1 billion valuation in the introduction, and based on investor interest in Magic Quadrants, you know that they pay attention to the placement. Every company that has acquired a leader does not fail to mention that in the press release or in their PowerPoint presentations to customers and investors. S1 filings for IPOs invariably mention Magic Quadrant placement if it is anything but niche. Press Relations Every time a new MQ comes out, you have an opportunity to issue a self-congratulatory press release. This, incidentally, serves to promulgate the power of the Magic Quadrant for Gartner. Being in the Magic Quadrant is often table stakes for being included in the trade press reviews, and other analyst firms pay attention to the vendors in the MQ. M&A Activity since the Gardner Magic Quadrants are often the best market summary for a particular space, it is inevitable that those involved in mergers and acquisitions use the MQ as a baseline in their due diligence. All the other benefits listed here aside, there is a real cost associated with attaining leader status, and an acquirer recognizes that buying the leader means that they will expend less on fighting the MQ battle post-acquisition. What is the Magic Quadrant? For every product or service category that warrants it, Gartner analysts create and publish a research node called the Gartner Magic Quadrant. This document describes the current state of the market. Drivers for the market are highlighted, as well as macro factors such as the economy, and major shifts in demand or technology. Key criteria are included, and a synopsis describing each vendor is provided. The document is built around a simple graphic, a square broken into four quadrants. The two axes are Ability to Execute, Vertical, and Completeness of Vision, Horizontal. Ability to Execute. This is the business side of the measurement. Ability to Execute is a measure of a vendor's ability to scale to meet demand while keeping up the pace of innovation. This is where executive management team experience and track record is considered. A publicly traded company, which has readier access to capital and transparency in its performance, gets a heavier weighting than a private company. Other crucial factors are partnerships. 
Does the vendor have an ecosystem of partners whose products integrate with theirs? Have they engaged major channels, such as IBM Global Services or one of the large consulting firms, such as Deloitte or PwC, to help sell their products? Reference Customers Remember that the analyst probably does not have hands-on experience with your product. He does, however, know the buyers at the largest companies in the world and gives a lot of weight to their purchasing decisions. Channel Strategy Direct Multi-tier distribution? Hybrid? It is typical for a young company to be 100% direct. They have not built the momentum to attract resellers and through them distributors. Established vendors who have crossed Jeffrey Moore's chasm are typically 100% channel. Analysts tend to have a prejudice in favor of that 100% channel strategy since it is an indicator of company maturity. Geographic Placement Let's face it, companies in certain locations tend to become market leaders. They have to be close to their customers or close to a supply of employees. To an analyst, a technology company in Florida is likely to be viewed as motivated by easy living and lifestyle choices instead of access to resources and clients. It is no mystery why Mark Andreessen packed up his bags and moved to Silicon Valley to found Netscape. Geographic Dispersion an analyst will look at the global reach of a vendor to determine where it is on its growth curve. Are EU offices limited to one in Brussels or the UK? Or for a European vendor, is there only one US office in New Jersey? Typically, leaders have multiple sales offices and often development, support, and manufacturing in North America, EMEA, and Asia. As LATAM develops, it too will be included as an indicator of ability to execute. Revenue Distribution An analyst will look for the percentage breakdown of revenue from each major region. The expectation is that more than 50% of sales will come from the U.S. market, reflecting the giant size of the IT market in the United States. If a U.S. vendor derives 70% or more from the U.S. market, that is an indication of early growth phase and the need for additional investment in global expansion. The same goes for EMEA or Asia-PAC vendors. If the source of revenue indicates a local aspect, ability to execute may be impaired. Research and Development Expenditures Analysts are interested in the overall size of an R&D department compared to the rest of the organization. Vendors will often attempt to inflate this metric by lumping sales engineers in with development. A company that is underinvesting in engineering is one that may not stay competitive or is milking its installed base for profitability to please Wall Street. Support. One measure that is often derived from an analyst's conversations with your customers is the quality of your support. In the 90s, Cisco was known for its manic attention to customer support. Customers would resist switching vendors just based on the fear of losing their relationship with the Cisco engineers they trusted. An analyst can be deeply swayed by reports that your customer support is plagued with long waits on the phone, failure to return calls, and long delays getting replacement products, RMA. Conversely, an analyst will be favorably impressed by reports of outstanding support. Marketing Strategy Analysts of all people understand the importance of a well-thought-out marketing strategy and execution on that strategy. Sure, there are the Googles of the world that can create products customers need and don't bother with marketing, but there are also the Apples that focus the entire company on product design, quality, and marketing. You don't want the answer to, how do you market your product, to be word of mouth. Completeness of Vision The horizontal axis of the magic quadrant is a measure of completeness of vision. There's no getting around the fact that this means 
the analyst division, not yours. You have to understand what the analyst considers when compiling these measures. Comprehensive features. Most technology vendors start out with a single product that addresses a single problem. Over time, as customer requirements are incorporated, the number of features grow to the point where the product is a complete solution that contributes to customer productivity. The first word processors did little more than what a typewriter could do with the added ability to quickly revise documents. As the market evolved and Microsoft Word eventually won, word processing software turned into massive productivity suites for the office with spreadsheets, presentation software, macros, and integration with automated systems. Completeness of vision in the early days might have included support for multiple non-standard fonts. Today it would include the integration with cloud storage, encryption, and publishing capabilities to Kindle and print-on-demand sources. Innovation. Analysts look for evidence that a vendor is pushing the envelope and defining the required features in their product category. Are the other vendors behind you? Are they scrambling to introduce features that you invented? Are they losing deals to you based on your innovations? Product narrative. It is critical that a vendor be able to articulate why they are in business and why their products address the needs of the market. Large vendors such as IBM, CA, EMC, and even Cisco are most challenged by this requirement. How can they articulate a strategy around telepresence in Cisco's case when there's no hiding the fact that they are a routing and switching company? How could Coke convince an analyst that they are in the quality of life enhancement business when in fact they're marketers and licensors of sweetened carbonated beverages? This is why the largest vendors invariably end up in the upper left quadrant, challengers. They have massive presence and thus ability to execute, but their vision is clouded by other interests. Customer References On this axis, the key customer reference is the one who says, we chose this vendor because they solved a problem no one else could. If enough Gartner clients report a similar need for a feature or capability that only you have addressed, that will be the most influential aspect on your completeness of vision. The Four Quadrants the existence of two axes that bisect a square creates four quadrants. The MQ research note provides a synopsis of each vendor organized into these four categories. Niche. The niche quadrant is where most new vendors to the MQ start out. Either their revenue is too low or their product only serves a limited segment of the Gartner client base. Becoming a new participant in an MQ is usually a great thing for a vendor. It can serve to jumpstart their sales. They are on the map. However, moving from any of the other quadrants to the niche quadrant is considered a disaster. It means that the vendor has failed to innovate if their last position was visionary or they're rapidly losing relevance in the market if they had been a challenger. The best path for a niche vendor is to move to the right into visionary and then cross the line up and into the leader's quadrant. Visionary. Vendors in the visionary quadrant have industry-leading products, but do not have the revenue, global reach, partnerships, and channel organization to be leaders. Vendors should strive to be the farthest to the right, the most visionary. Often, challengers will acquire visionary vendors in the hopes that, with their ability to execute, they will quickly boost the company into the leader's quadrant, an exercise in vector addition that does not always work. Challenger. It's not a bad thing to be a challenger. It usually implies that the vendor has a large installed base, tremendous resources, and has been around for a while. 
In many markets, the challengers represent the ones to beat in most enterprise sales situations. These are the entrenched vendors. They are bad at coming up with new products and features, which is a natural outcome of having many customers and and legacy products to support. If there is a fast-moving trend in their space, if there is a fast-moving trend in their space, they will acquire a young company for their technology and people. Very few challengers are also good integrators of acquisitions. Too often, the acquisition appears to disappear from the market. Leaders, this is the goal: getting to the leader's quadrant. It means you have exceptional products and the ability to grow with demand while continuing to invest in new features and respond rapidly to changing customer needs. But the game is not over. The leader quadrant defines your primary competitors. You want to be up and to the right of all of them. Of course, all of these factors are considered in a different light depending on the overall maturity of a market. An MQ for Enterprise Resource Planning (ERP) or Business Process Intelligence (BPI) is going to have different requirements for ability to execute and completeness of vision than an MQ for bioinformatics or cloud services. Wow, these are stringent requirements. How can you even hope to influence an analyst when they use such objective criteria? Well, the assumption is that you have all of these qualities, that your products are great. Your customers love you, and you are on a roll. Otherwise, how could you hope to be a market leader? You can fool the analysts for a short time, especially in a newly emerging product category. But in the long run, the analyst will figure it out. The purpose of analyst influence is to make sure they know your qualities. And analysts are human; they derive clues that shape their judgment from many sources. If someone they respect, the CIO at a major bank, raves about your product or company, they're going to give you the benefit of increased attention. If they see your company on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for doing something game-changing, they're going to take that into account. If they see positive comments posted to Twitter and forums about your company, they'll be swayed to view you in a positive light. If they realize that your customer support issues come from a brief glitch in your software updates, they'll take that into account. So read on, because influence in all its various forms works. The creation of a magic quadrant. Here is how magic quadrants are created. This is based on my four years as the primary author of two magic quadrants and secondary author on several more. It is also derived from my knowledge of changes to the process since I left. Thanks to frequent challenges to their process and objectivity from disgruntled vendors, Gartner has put a lot of work into improving their process. I also work with many vendors on their responses to the surveys Gartner sends out for magic quadrants, so I've seen this evolution firsthand. Each magic quadrant has at least one primary author and possibly several secondary authors, depending on the size and importance of a product category. The responsibility for creating an MQ is the most onerous task a Gartner analyst has. Creating 18-slide PowerPoint presentations for summits and symposia is the next most onerous task. Analysts dread the process. They like to be thinking about and researching the next big thing, not rehashing ground they covered over and over. In most cases, the MQ for a particular category already exists. The analyst either was present at the inception or inherited the MQ from another analyst who has moved up, moved on to other areas of coverage, or left Gartner altogether. There is surprisingly little support structure at Gartner. No research assistants, secretaries, fact checkers, or business intelligence tools to help them. 
There is a huge staff of editors, but they are often a hindrance, not a help. Gartner editors make sure that research notes are in the Gartner voice, thus eliminating the opportunity for an analyst to imbue his or her research with his own voice and flavor of discourse. Gartner analysts are individual contributors and remarkably free from day-to-day hassles you would expect from a highly paid professional, often with the title of vice president. They have no direct reports, thus no employee evaluations to fill out, and few meetings except by conference call to discuss research agendas and support summit activities. They work from home and are often on the road. Other than producing research notes and presentations, the vast majority of their time is taken up with briefings and inquiries predominantly over the phone. The publication of MQs used to be scheduled to coincide with the Gartner IT Symposium at Disney World every fall, but today that is not adhered to as strictly. Symposium is a massive event with close to 10,000 attendees from the Gartner client base and over 150 vendors with booths in the exposition area. It is a week-long extravaganza of keynotes from the CEOs of top technology firms. Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, Steve Jobs, and Larry Ellison have all been on the main stage at Symposium. Each analyst has several sessions to present, as well as grueling hours in rat maze booths doing one-on-one meetings with vendors and end-users. Their presentations are supposed to include updated magic quadrants for their sectors. Often, the official schedule for MQs is for a new one to appear every six months. Because of the tremendous workload, this often gets collapsed into one every 12 months, which is actually a blessing for the vendors. Responding to the MQ surveys is an arduous task, too. First, the analyst must decide who makes the cut for the next version of the MQ. They look at all the vendors who have been acquired or, thanks to their inside knowledge, are about to be acquired. They determine what the inclusion criteria will be, often a gross revenue measure, but sometimes a new requirement based on changes to the market. Throughout the year, they would have been making notes about new vendors to include, usually as niche vendors, based on the 100 to 200 vendor briefings they have participated in. The analyst then refines the spreadsheet containing the 20 to 150 questions that are going to be used to generate the positions in the magic quadrant. In addition to the actual questions, they come up with the secret weightings that are applied to each answer from each vendor. The questionnaires are usually broken down into business questions and product capability questions that line up with the ability to execute and completeness of vision axes. The analyst must then send the questionnaire to the contact person on record at each vendor. This is a part they dread. It's the official kickoff of the vendor response cycle. Savvy vendors use this phase to schedule briefings and inquiries, if they're clients, to get clarification on what the analyst is thinking. It could mean 15 or more scheduled calls for the analyst, all to discuss the upcoming MQ. When the vendors respond by the required time, with the usual pleas for extensions, the responses are reviewed and combined into one spreadsheet. A score or rating is given to each answer, and each question has a weight associated with it. Low, standard, high. At the press of a button, the ratings and weights are applied, and the magic quadrant is created. Well, that is how it would work in an ideal world. In reality, each vendor responds with different units, different timescales, oh, you mean calendar quarters, and often just confusing entries. The analyst has to determine if the report of revenue is bookings, sales, or even if the vendor pulled some sleight-of-hand reporting list price sales instead of discounted sales, or whether they bundle services and consulting into product revenue. It's a nightmare. Once all the data is normalized, and perhaps adjusted to reflect reality, an MQ is generated. 
Now comes the subjective part. The spreadsheet tool might cluster all the respective dots from all the vendors around the crosshairs. All the vendors are almost the same in ability to execute and completeness of vision. No problem. The scale is adjusted to spread them out. Then the analyst does a reality check. Does that vendor with the slick product but only 25 employees really belong in the leader's quadrant? Is IBM really a niche vendor in the space? How did the company that was first to market fall below the line into visionary? How has the picture changed from the year before? Can the major moves be explained? After all the adjustments and a review by other analysts to get buy-in, the draft MQ is sent to all the participating vendors along with the brief synopsis of their company and product that will be in the main body of the research note. Then the fun begins. Every vendor who is not happy with their placement makes urgent requests for briefings to clarify their position or argue why they are so much better than the vendors ranked above them. Even the vendors placed in the leader's quadrant will not be happy unless they are the farthest up and to the right. Every word of the synopsis will be scrutinized by the vendor and they will lobby for minor changes that portray them in a better light. Vendors have been known to count the number of words devoted to them and attempt to bring that number in line with their competitor's count. Finally, the analyst will complete the vendor response phase and send the MQ off to editing, where it is scrubbed for language compliance and formatted for publication. It is out of the analyst's hands. She breathes a sigh of relief and moves on to the other MQ for which she is responsible. Now that we have examined the magic quadrant and the process to create it, let's turn to the topic of how you can influence this process to your advantage.